and Father God, we bless you for the gift of these children, and we ask that they would be comforted today uh, by your Holy Spirit in any of their afflictions. And please would they uh, be good friends to one another, offering to share the comfort that they have received. Uh, we pray for us as we remain, Lord, that you would uh, open your word to us this morning and bless us. Would our minds be enlightened, would our hearts be warmed to you, and um, would our bodies be readied for action by your word today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've had a good time so far this summer learning from the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And it's a book that's uh, full of interesting philosophy and wisdom. It's all about life here under the sun. And uh, one of the favorite themes of Ecclesiastes that we've heard over and over again in the past few weeks is work, uh, which is often called toil in this book. Uh, this book asks, what is the nature of work? Why do we work? And what benefits do we gain from working? These are major questions that King Solomon had at the end of his life. And they're great questions for Americans to think about now after COVID. Uh, you've probably noticed that probably the most uh, lasting impact of the pandemic on our society is how it's changed the way we work. Um, a lot of jobs just disappeared during quarantine, and some of them didn't come back. Some of us were told that we weren't essential. Um, other jobs did come back, but now they're online. We work from home instead of going to the office, and then a whole bunch more jobs have been created by the pandemic, especially in the areas of mental health and counseling. Uh, the whole situation has been highly disruptive to the way that we work and destabilizing to the way we think about work. The whole country is reassessing. The number of unfilled jobs is way up on what it was a decade ago, and the number of workers is down. Back in 2009, there were about 2 million job vacancies around the country. Today, that number is more than 10 million. It's why every business you visit is hiring. And the Department of Labor predicts that another 8 million jobs will be added to the economy over the next eight years. So opportunities abound, but at the same time, our workforce is declining. In the case of men, more than 12% of men in our country between the ages of 25 and 54 are not working and not looking for a job. They're living off of inheritance money or investments or welfare or in their parents' basements. But one way or another, one man in 10 has now checked out of the workforce entirely. So we might ask, why are American workers becoming so unmotivated? And I'm sure we could get plenty of pundits up here to give all kinds of modern answers. But I like the ancient answers. After all, there's nothing new under the sun. And King Solomon wrestled with this very same problem. So uh, let's find his analysis on it in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It's page 555 of the Church Bibles, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. So here in chapter 4, we uh, again encounter the problem of work. Um, in chapter 1, we've seen that work is essentially uh, frustrated and, and vain. In chapter 2, we cannot find the things we seek. There's a frustration to our work. In chapter 3, we are limited and trapped by time, and time erases everything we do in the work. And here, in chapter 4, we encounter yet another problem with our work, and that is the everyday reality of evil, that not only is work spoiled by uh, toilsome frustration and uh, the, the erasing of time, 
it's also uh, deeply frustrated by evil. And that's to the extent that Solomon cries out in chapter 4, verse 3, that it is better for the one who has not yet been born and not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So our happiness and our contentment in our work is greatly undermined by this evil. And first, in this passage, we find institutional sin. Second, there's personal sin. And then third, Solomon does find hope in the solution of companionship or of loving community around our work. So I want to follow those three moves. We're just in the first 12 uh, verses of this chapter 4. Um, so first I want to think about institutional sin. And this idea starts a little bit further back in uh, the previous chapter, in chapter 3, verse 16. So glance back at chapter 3, verse 16, where Solomon writes, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And this problem leads to his situation that we find at the beginning of chapter 4, where he says, Again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So we remember that Solomon was king, king in Jerusalem, and he was an unusually good and wise king. And we remember right from the beginning of his reign that the first public demonstration of his wisdom was in judging a difficult court case, a difficult legal case. I'm sure you remember that story that two women came before Solomon and between them they had one baby and each woman insisted that she was the baby's mother and they told the story that the other woman's baby had died in the night. It was such a difficult case to judge. It was one woman's word against the other. Nobody could bring forward any proof or testimony to resolve it. And wise King Solomon said, bring me a sword. Let's cut the baby in half. You can have half each. To which the first woman replied, great idea, let's do that. <laughs> and the other woman said, no, no, let her keep the child. And Solomon gave the baby to the second woman, having proved that she was the true mother. That story made national news. It was a stunning demonstration of heavenly wisdom. And it shows us that the most valuable place for wisdom to be found is in the law courts. So surely if any nation could mete out justice properly, it would be Israel under King Solomon. And yet at the end of his long reign, Solomon casts his eyes over his country and he bemoans that all his institutions are riddled with wickedness. How this injustice hurts the king's heart. He sees the tears of the oppressed in his own land and he grieves that there's no one to comfort them. Either his courts are turning a blind eye to oppression or they're actually causing oppression. And if that was true in his good kingdom, how much more true is it for all the other kingdoms since, including our own? Even our systems and structures that are designed to stand against evil, even these are corrupt. So Solomon here gives us a kind of early version of our modern doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity does not say that all things are as bad as they could possibly be. It's not to say there isn't still good to be found in people or in systems. But it does say that everything you ever see is disappointing. Nothing is as good and pure as it was designed to be. Everything is infected by sin. And nothing in all the world is free from corruption. 
And I doubt that any of you will have trouble believing that when it comes to our own modern institutions. The government, the courts of law, the police, the news media, big business, Wall Street, the Department of Education, even the denominations of the church are all routinely treated with suspicion, if not with downright contempt. Their high crimes and misdemeanors have been paraded throughout all of our lives in public. And that hurts our motivation to work, doesn't it? Why should we toil and give up our time and our energy and serve something that isn't good when at the top of the hierarchy there lurks a lowering beast? Do I want a job in a big company that exploits people or poisons the planet? Do I want to enlist in the army and risk my life for a nation that can no longer tell me who it is or what it stands for? Or to sign on as a public servant in a system that's slow, clumsy, drowning in red tape and blind to certain matters of truth and justice? It's all pretty uninspiring. It puts a big damper on a worker's enthusiasm. So little wonder then that millions of Americans are avoiding the workplace altogether and millions more show up to work out of necessity merely for the paycheck. Back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the burden of our bondage in time has been mitigated by the pleasure that God gives the worker in his toil. But then here in chapter 4, we find that that same pleasure in our work has now been greatly reduced, if not entirely stolen, by the ever-present reality of evil. And that's only half the problem, because we're not only dealing with institutional sin, second, there's also the problem of personal sin. Evil that's not just out there in the world, but also in here, in my own heart. Solomon picks up in verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after wind. Then the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. And again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So in these verses, Solomon lists out four separate ways that our personal sin manifests itself in the workplace. First, there's envy, that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Second, sloth or laziness, the fool who folds his hands and does no work. Third, there's greed, the endless striving for two hands full instead of one. And fourth, workaholism, the person who toils and toils to no apparent end, accumulating riches he never spends. Does any of that sound familiar? Surely these very sins are the bedrock of American capitalism, uh, not just secretly, but overtly. I wouldn't include sloth with that because that has not traditionally been one of America's besetting sins. But envy, greed, and workaholism are the fuel of the American economy. We've built a system that rewards greed and celebrates greedy people, that deliberately creates envy in consumers through aggressive marketing, and fosters an environment where workaholics can thrive. We do have to say that in the past, this cocktail of envy, greed, and workaholism has produced some pretty impressive results. Towering cities, wondrous inventions, mighty athletes, and all kinds of technology to ease the suffering of the human family. Envy and greed are powerful motivators that do get people to work to achieve some pretty amazing things. 
And to be fair, I don't want to stand here and say that no good or altruistic motivations have helped to bring these good things to pass. I'm sure they did. But we've got to recognize, along with Solomon, just how much of our human work and progress has been built on foundations of sin and selfishness. That's important to recognize because I think part of what we're seeing in this post-COVID world is the failure of those motivations that have been so powerful in the past. The American dream based on envy is not working anymore in the upcoming generations. They are not convinced by it nor motivated by it. And marketing based on greed and envy is growing less and less effective. It used to get us up out of bed to work and spend hard. But now maybe it does the opposite. Ordinary young Americans are sick of the greed and of the rat race and all the ways that business as usual has divided and exploited people. Instead, they want peace and justice and equal opportunities. And they're terrified of falling into the greed of their parents or of taking more than their share. So then feeling hopelessly stuck in a system built on selfishness, they react by piecing out, or at least by holding the whole capitalist mentality at arm's length. The modern problem then is the fourth thing on Solomon's list, the problem of verse five, of checking out, of folding our hands and eating our own flesh. 12% of adult men. In Solomon's day, the non-workers would literally starve. That's probably what he means by eating their own flesh. Today, they don't starve. They have an income stream and they eat just fine. But maybe there are still other ways that they do eat their own flesh. As their absence from the workplace costs them community, it costs them purpose, then it costs them their skills and abilities, and finally, in all likelihood, their own minds. It's not a good option for human life and Solomon laments it. So what then? What are we to do? And here's where we get into the third part, which is the hope. That begins in verse 9, where Solomon says, two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. I want to zoom in here and look at just the very first word of verse 9. Two. We get the word two. Two better than one. In our Bible study on Wednesday, uh, Colton noticed how many numbers are in this passage. And mostly, we find the number one. So many people in this section are alone. Verse one lamented twice that there was no one to comfort the oppressed. They were left alone. The fool in verse five seems to be alone. The person grabbing two handfuls in verse six seems to be alone. Verse eight has the vanity, one person has no other. So throughout the verses that we've seen that talk about evil, the dominant number we find is the number one. And as soon as the hope starts, it begins with the bright number two. <laughs> Could we say from this observation that the tendency of evil and the effect of evil is always to isolate people, is always to lead them in the direction of being alone? Mathematically, evil trends downwards to one. 
The oppressor isolates the victim and leaves them alone. In turn, that act of oppression isolates the oppressor and leaves them alone too. Oppression divides societies and makes enemies out of friends. Greed leads us to self-isolate. The more a person gains, the more they separate themselves from others and hide behind high fences. And sin in our own hearts causes us to separate and to hide from our brothers and sisters. A guilty conscience and a reluctance to confess cause us to seek out the darkness and to avoid community. So if you follow any of the paths of evil, they all trend down toward one. Evil works to leave each person isolated and alone. And I wonder then, could that perhaps be its primary work? We know that it comes to steal and kill and destroy, which in itself produces misery. But does it even more than that? Seek the response of the human heart of hatred, which has the power to divide and isolate the human family. And if that's the case, should we then in all ways resist the gravitational pull of evil toward one? Solomon realizes that two are better than one, always, always intrinsically better. He gives simple examples of partnership in work, help in an emergency, warmth on a cold night, and reinforcements under attack. Beyond these simple practical advantages of two over one, we can also find joy and purpose in these verses. Because in verse 8, the workaholic's question, for whom am I toiling, implies a lack of purpose in work that is for no one. And in turn, that implies that there is purpose in toiling when it's for the benefit of someone else. In verse 5, the two who work together have a good reward for their toil. A good reward. And that suggests both purpose and joy. The antidote, then, to a toilsome, meaningless labor is to have someone to do it with and someone to do it for. Another person is the answer. Two are better than one. Community solves the problem of meaninglessness in our work. We are better together. And then in verse 12, three, well, that's even better than two. If the nature of evil is divisive and subtractive, trending down toward one, then wisdom and righteousness is additive and multiplicative. It trends upwards on and on, ideally, to include everybody, which is all very nice. Sounds good. It makes good sense. Except that there's a problem here. There's a missing ingredient. This recipe, as Solomon has it, does not in any way solve the problem of evil that it raises. Community might help to ease the pain a bit, but it doesn't solve the root problem. A community of the oppressed is better than an oppressed person alone with no one to offer comfort, but they're still oppressed. And in fact, the formula that Solomon offers here trends in the direction of tribalism. A community of the oppressed will become a tribe that collectively hates their oppressors. A community of workers together will become an enclave that isolates itself from its non-members on the outside. Solomon's wisdom here is seeing the heart of the problem, and it's pointing us in the right direction of the solution, but Solomon doesn't seem to know or doesn't seem to share the whole solution. There's a major missing piece, and that missing piece is forgiveness. Perhaps he does hint at it here in verse 12. Sessie shared an idea at Bible study on Wednesday night. 
um, that with all the math that's going on in this passage, maybe we should treat verse 12 as a math problem too. One man comes against two, and we end the verse with a threefold chord. Could it be that that's the same man? <laughs> the man who was an attacker has become an ally, that the enemy has been turned into a friend. Now, maybe that's a bit of a stretch, but it is a cool idea, and it does put into this text a tiny bit of the flavor that it needs to resolve its conundrum, the flavor that we find then in full strength in the teaching and ministry of Jesus. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is the power to turn enemies into friends. So if evil divides the human family and trends toward isolation and loneliness, then forgiveness is the power to do the exact opposite. It reunites the fractured family and constantly adds to its number. Jesus died with a prayer on his lips. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do you realize, saints, how important this prayer is to your work, to your daily work? how important this prayer is to your motivation in the workplace. Because your work today is spoiled by the reality of evil. It's really and truly spoiled by it, ruined. Yes, the people you work for are wicked. They make bad and exploitative decisions. And yes, you are wicked. And you get up for work for all kinds of selfish reasons. It's more than enough to cause you to despair and to check out altogether except that then you would spoil your life in all kinds of other ways. <clears throat> so we're really stuck between a rock and a hard place until Jesus comes to forgive us. On the cross of Jesus, there is a double promise, both that evil will be properly dealt with and also that it can be forgiven. On the one hand, God's punishment of his own son shows what is waiting for the oppressors, for the people who use their power to do harm, and that is great comfort to the oppressed. It also shows what is waiting in store for the fools and the misers and the workaholics and all who continue to govern their lives according to the principles of evil. But on the other hand, Jesus takes their punishment willingly in their place and stands ready to forgive every workaholic and miser and fool and oppressor who will repent and receive him as Lord. And this offer puts the whole human family back together. And it's the only thing that can. It rebuilds the sweet walls of community in the only way that doesn't lead toward tribalism. For forgiveness knows of no outsiders and does not need to define itself in opposition to other people. Forgiveness is all-embracing. So let's think about our own lives today. Are you unmotivated to work because of institutional sins in big companies or in the government? Those are real. The word of God acknowledges them. But it also says that we can leave such problems as these to Jesus. Jesus has established his credentials to punish them or to forgive them as he will. And we work not in the end for them, but for him. Paul said to the Colossians, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord and not for men. That is our gospel solution and our gospel hope. Now, of course, there are some jobs that Christians should not do. And there are some companies that Christians should not work for. Some wise discernment is needed. 
But there's no such thing as a sinless company, and we do have to get to work. So we reconcile that tension with the peace that what we do, we do what the Lord has called us to do, and we work for him and not for people. On the other hand, are you unmotivated to work because you recognize the sinful drives of your own heart? This is where we can rest in the awesome gift of God's forgiveness. Because, yes, there is sin in there too. There are bad motivations in there. But the good news is that sinful motivations can be forgiven. And if you are convicted this morning that you have been getting up in the morning to work out of envy or greed or workaholism, then there's grace for you, friend, and forgiveness. Tell Jesus you're sorry and go back to work tomorrow for his sake working with someone you love and for someone you love. Our work is no longer a prisoner of meaninglessness, condemned to serve evil and be motivated by evil. It too is redeemed now by the cross. It is conscripted into the service of the Lord and motivated by our love for him. So I would challenge us on this point. Are we working as hard out of love for Jesus as our neighbors work out of envy. They are slaves, and we are free. But that freedom should make us better workers, not worse ones. We dishonor our Lord if, we, if our love for him motivates us less in our work than envy did before. And I raise that as a general challenge. But to your credit, I see in practice some of you working twice as hard out of devotion to Jesus as any Wall Street executive and not to the detriment of your families. Finally, we've seen today in God's word once again the central importance of forgiveness. Forgiveness is God's powerful rebuke to evil. Evil trends always downward towards singularity and isolation while forgiveness trends up toward inclusion and community. Has Solomon's way of viewing this as a math problem helped you to see where you need more forgiveness in your life? <clears throat> Are you isolated in your work, maybe estranged from the other people you work with or work for? Could the antidote of forgiveness help with that and give you back the working community that you need and long for? Two are better than one, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Or do you feel isolated in this church because of past friction with other members? Could the antidote of forgiveness help with that and restore you into fellowship? Or finally, are you self-isolating and avoiding community because of a burdened conscience for a sin that you're reluctant to bring into the light? If so, then I warn you that you are on a path that trends downward toward one that evil is still actually doing its work in your life, and you will experience more and more isolation down that path. The antidote, the only antidote, is to come and confess your sins, to find forgiveness. We all wish there was another way, but that's the only way we get. It comes with the promise that all sin that is confessed is forgiven, and you will be amazed at how fast the trends of isolation turn around when you bring the things that are on your conscience into the light. This process really, really works. And it's our only hope, not just for our church life, but for our work lives too. So we comfort one another with this comfort that we have received. 
Our comfort from the Lord is, first and foremost, the word of grace and forgiveness that has saved us. Who else needs to hear it? Who needs comfort from your lips? Go to them quickly and dry their tears. Amen.